evening, everybody, um, and uh, thank you for joining um, this evening. Uh, welcome to uh, the Mental Health of the Lawyer. Um, this program is presented by Beit Midrash Zichron Adov, um, in partnership with the Bayit in Shai Shamayim, and thank you to the two shuls for partnering and promoting this. Um, just for people's records that they know, the next program, God willing, will be in June, the beginning of June. Um, thanks to Pesach in the middle and some medical uh, shirim for the medical <coughs> sessions for the doctors. So the next one that's planned is for June 5th. It's also a Monday evening. It'll be 7 p.m. and that will be artificial intelligence and the practice of law, which to be fair, I had booked before ChatGPT and all those other things um, upended the world. Um, this session is accredited by the Law Society of Ontario for one and a half professionalism hours. Um, you do need to sign in via the chat. Um, Pre-registering for it does not qualify um, as, uh, as signing in. You have to actually sign in. I see a lot of people have. Thank you very much. Um, you don't need to put in your email address if you're already getting the emails. That means that I have your email address. I just need your name to indicate that you signed in. If you're not getting the emails, then yes, I will need your email address as well. Can't send you a credit certificate without that. Um, I am not recording video. I am recording audio. And as usual, I expect to send out uh, a link for the audio recording afterwards. Um, but because I'm not recording audio, I hope that you will be comfortable having your screen on. We have a, you know, some people with their screen on, but uh, the more the merrier. Um, it's a lot easier for me when I can actually see people. I don't care if you're eating dinner. I, you know, I grabbed something to eat before this, um, and uh, and you're welcome to do so as well. Um, you no, no expectation that you'll even share. Okay, so our topic is, as I said before, mental health of the lawyer. And this addresses the following professionalism topics, which I listed for you in source number one on the sheet. Um, 5.3, best practices for career and profile management as a legal professional, mentoring best practices for lawyers and paralegals, and work-life balance and wellness principles for lawyers, lawyers and paralegals, excluding training in yoga, meditation, and nutrition. So I will not spend any time this evening training you in yoga. Um, that you'll just have to, uh, to get somewhere else. Um, I did note, by the way, at the top of the sheet, a link um, that website, if you were to go there, you would find um, links for recordings from our past sessions. So you can find uh, lots of topics, obviously, there. Um, if you want to listen to those and get credit for it with the Law Society, I think you can, but I can't provide you a letter saying that you listened to it since I have no way to determine that. So we start um, with an article from August 2022 by Justice George Strathy, um, who was the Chief Justice of Ontario. I believe he has since retired. The article is called The Litigator and Mental Health. If you take a look at source number two, this is just a couple of paragraphs from his article, and I'm going to put a link in the chat once again for the source sheets since people have joined Mental illness is stigmatized by our society and by our profession. Stereotypical thinking about mental health in the legal profession associates poor mental health or illness with an inability to control emotions or thoughts, a lack of judgment, the inability to work hard or withstand pressure, and unreliability. When people think about somebody having issues involving their mental health, they 
tend to leap to the assumption that this person will not be able to do their job. It's almost a binary thing. If you have this problem, then you can't work. If, um, if you don't have this problem, then you can't. By contrast, the stereotypical barrister is held in high esteem, a fearless gladiator. That's a term I'm going to be coming back to. Um, wielding a razor-sharp intellectual broadsword always in control of their emotions, erudite and articulate, powering through long hours of work with pride and not breaking a sweat under pressure, sometimes wounded but never defeated, suffering in silence and quietly bandaging their own wounds, ready to fight another day, presumably, you know, sewing up the wounds themselves, um, uh, and able to play hard as well as work hard. That's the the image. And it's sort of, you know, an opposition of either the person is fully healthy, um, or the person is unable to, uh, to function as a lawyer. The grip of these two myths on our profession, that mental health is something that affects others, not us, and the gladiator-litigator myth means that we rarely discuss mental health in the same conversation as litigation, because we believe one precludes the other. For too long, members of our profession have been beholden to the idea that our experiences in navigating mental health challenges, whatever they may be, are incongruous with a successful career in litigation. We have internalized the myth that only the the invincible are successful. We need to call out these myths, not only because they are false, but also because they send the wrong message about who, quote, belongs in litigation and because they cause terrible suffering for those who believe that they cannot or do not measure up to the gladiator ideal. Now, his focus is on the litigator, right? But this is an issue beyond litigation, and you see that in the wellness study done by the Federation of Law Societies of Canada, which was published in 2022. If you take a look at source number three, I just wanted to share with you some statistics from their general findings, and I gave you a link where you can yeah, see the, uh, the the study yourself. 6,626 respondents from provinces across Canada, 59.4% of the respondents report psychological distress. Now, it's entirely possible that that number is skewed based on those who chose to respond to the study. I'm not claiming that that represents the entire legal field. Uh, but that's your statistic. Of those who report distress, 20.6% say it is, quote, very high. 36.9% say it is high. 24.1% out of 5,836 legal professionals who responded report suicidal thoughts. Particular groups reporting psychological distress, and I just took some of the numbers. There is more in the study. Um, 63.7% of female legal professionals 71.1% of legal professionals between the ages of 26 and 35, 72% of articling students. And I thank those who sent me articles specifically related to the articling phenomenon. 65.9% um, of Ontario paralegals. 67% of legal professionals between the ages of 31 and 35 report burnout. Now, my point in bringing all of this um, is not to say that things are worse now than they were before. For all I know, they were worse 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago. Um, my point is not to say that lawyers today are more sensitive than their predecessors, as sensitive as their predecessors. My point is simply to say that as an outsider, because you know I am not a lawyer, 
um, this is not a picture of a healthy profession. Like, you don't get numbers like this if you talk to people in many other professions. You just don't. Um, and there are statistics for certain other professions. Something, something is clearly wrong. Um, and it's something that we need to pay attention to. And so what I want to do tonight is to blend two elements. Um, some of this is going to be medical, um, in the sense that we're going to be talking psychology for some of this. Um, some of it will be legal slash halachic, Jewish law, dealing with specific issues that come up in the culture of the legal workplace. As always, um, nothing I say should be construed as halachic advice for a particular case. This is not a, uh, you know, intended to be a, a halachic ruling for any particular circumstance. And it's also not medical advice. The, um, for halachic advice, consult your rabbi. Um, for medical advice, consult your doctor. Um, you can consult your doctor and your rabbi if you like on either of those. But, um, but I want to address some of these issues that come up. I'm going to pause for questions, comments, and to uh, once again tell people that they should sign in via the chat. It's really stunning how many people after a session didn't sign in, and then afterwards they get an email saying, oh, I was there, but I just forgot to sign in. So I'm telling you, please sign in. Um, okay, questions and comments before we go further. Further. I have a very important comment. Yes, that Michael. The instruction said if you register, you don't have to do anything else. I think that's why a lot of people don't sign in. The same so email said twice that even if you registered, you still need to sign in. It just said you don't need to register again because there are a lot of people who register multiple times. But uh, but I hear your point, Michael. I need to reword that. Let me say it in English. That's why I didn't understand. Okay. No okay. Thank you. We're good. I, I yeah, I can't forget. I'm dealing with lawyers, so I have to uh, to make sure that I word everything exactly properly. Okay. So let's let's jump into the vignettes. Um, I'm not going to actually read out all of them because um, we're only going to get to them one by one anyway. But I'm going to read out the first one. Samantha. 48, is a veteran litigator at Acres and Payne, specializing in prosecuting lawsuits against corporations for harm to the public interest, and particularly in health matters. Samantha gains great satisfaction from her work, but in recent years, she has felt a growing malaise and an increasing desire to leave the profession. Samantha has read about the gladiator litigator phenomenon, and I gave you a link in the vignette to an article about it, but I'm going to discuss it and feels that this is the source of her trouble. Can Judaism offer help with this? That's our that's our, our first question, and this is going to be more on the psychology side of things. But let me ask you, what is the gladiator mentality? What What is Samantha talking about here? What does that mean? Or is this a new term for everybody? I can't believe that. Mm-hmm. Especially, if, especially if you're CCing your client or BCing your client. But, okay. Uh, what else? What else is associated with the gladiator mentality or the gladiator litigator? Invincibility. Invincibility. Okay, that's a part of it. Like we saw in Justice Strathy's article. What else? <clears throat> Push through. Uh, whatever. 
Mm -hmm. That's definitely a piece. Fight to the death. death. Now we're talking. So I'm familiar with two aspects of the gladiator mentality. First, the idea of the lawyer as the knight in shining armor, riding to the rescue of the client at their own peril. I am here to save somebody. That's one. And then the other is to be the combatant in a winner-take-all battle to the death, along the lines of what you were talking about, Sergio. So those two phenomena um, are both experienced by lawyers, and they come under this heading, and they can both be difficult uh, to, to deal with. Let's talk about the knight in shining armor phenomenon first. Right? Is that something that, that you're familiar with? The idea that a lawyer will feel like I am the knight in shining armor on behalf of my client? Definitely. Right? I'm getting nodding heads. Yes. I mean, I see people here who are in immigration law. I see people here who are in family law. I, I see people who are in personal injury law. Um, you know, these are all fields where the client is potentially very vulnerable and the lawyer is the um, is you know called upon effectively to be the knight in shining armor and that yeah I brought you in source number four uh, from uh, an article called the dichotomy of the hero lawyer in the American cinema this actually was written by a law student in India in uh, third year law school in uh, in India and I thought it was really interesting to see. Yeah, well, I, I found it really interesting to see how the author perceived American cinema. Um, but uh, this, this writer, Pritish Agrawal, says, Around the mid-20th century, the hero lawyer in cinema would often be the one who found himself in the middle of moral conflict and who had to break the shambles of gross injustice to save a client or a community in distress. The hero lawyer would almost never be concerned with worldly possessions of money and fame and would often be engrossed in the pursuit of truth and justice. By the late 20th century, the difficulty of breaking these shambles was shown to be increasing and would often become one of the fundamental reasons for a change in the character's identity. The hero in the lawyer would not be existent from the first frame of the film, but would be developed while the camera would still be rolling. Nevertheless, the hero lawyer would in most cases rise by the end, slashing the said shambles of injustice. I think there's a little bit of a misuse of the term shambles, but we'll let it go. The, um, the, the point here is that either when you're starting out, the idea is that the, um, that the lawyer is already a hero coming in, or as you move forward in history, the lawyer is somebody who is evolving, and in the course of the um, in the course of the movie, the lawyer becomes more of a hero. Um, but either way, the lawyer is depicted as the hero on behalf of the client. Now, I stopped there in the article. If you were to go to the article itself, and you can Google it and find it, you would see that then he moves on to talk about more modern times and how the lawyer is no longer viewed as as much of a hero. The uh, things have things have changed, but I, I I took this piece of it because I felt like it is a popular image. Um, I also gave you in source number five the name of another article that you can find online: "The Lawyer as Superhero: How Marvel Comics Daredevil Depicts the American Court System and Legal Practice," 
which was also interesting and also worth a, uh, a read potentially. But this idea that the lawyer is the knight in shining armor on behalf of the uh, on behalf of the client is something that the profession itself builds up right there's a requirement to be a zealous protector of one's client if you take a look at source number 6 from an article ethical issues relating to lawyers and unrepresented litigants in the civil justice system Apart from the duty to the court and his professional regulating body, the lawyer's only duty is to the client. The lawyer is prohibited from creating any conflict of interest between that duty and a duty to others. Your job is to take care of the client. That's that's your responsibility. So that when you look at the rules of professional conduct of the law society in source number seven, we are told when acting as an advocate, a lawyer shall represent the client resolutely and honorably within the limits of the law while treating the tribunal with candor, fairness, courtesy and respect in the commentary on that. In adversarial proceedings, the lawyer has a duty to the client to raise fearlessly every issue, advance every argument, and ask every question, however distasteful, that the lawyer thinks will help the client's case, and to endeavor to obtain for the client the benefit of every remedy and defense authorized by law. You have to fight on behalf of your client. You have to be fearless, um, which is a word that really didn't add anything there except to increase the stress on the lawyer of, you know, you have to be fearless. That is the um, that is the expectation of the law society. And I see your hand moist just one minute. Um, if you take a look at source number number eight, um, we add to this that it's even at your own expense. Lawyers are expected to bend on their own needs in order to provide access to justice for their clients. So if you take a look at source number eight from the Rules of Professional Conduct from the Law Society, a lawyer shall make legal services available to the public in an efficient and convenient way. As a matter of access to justice, it is in keeping with the best traditions of the legal profession to provide services pro bono and to reduce or waive a fee when there is hardship or poverty or the client or prospective client would otherwise be deprived of adequate legal advice or representation. The Law Society encourages lawyers to provide public interest legal services and to support organizations that provide services to persons of limited means. So at your own expense, you have to act fearlessly and zealously on behalf of the client. Moish, thanks for waiting. You're muted. Thank you. 
direct it because there's no other way to win those cases other than to direct it to changing the law. So mm-hmm. that's my thought. Okay, thank you. I hear you. Other comments and questions? What we're seeing really is that it is built into the profession. And as Moish says, it's directed in a few different ways, but it is a built-in sense of you are the hero. You are the one who is here to rescue the client. You're here to rescue justice. You're here to save the world. And Judaism adds to that. The, um, that's something that, that, you know, it's a pressure that Judaism creates as well. We're 20 minutes in and we get to our first Torah source. Um, if you take a look at source number nine, from the Rambam, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, describing the duty of those who are going to carry out the law. He's talking about judges, but it applies to the legal system overall. He says, when Moshe, Moses, initially sets up judges, one of the criteria that he's looking for is Anshe Chayil. Anshe Chayil, people of substance, is I think a good translation for it. And he says, what does that mean? It means, and I'm going to read out my English translation, that they must have a brave heart to save the abused from one who would abuse him. In Hebrew, lahatzil ashuk miyad oshko. And it gives the example of Moshe in Egypt when he sees the Jew, um, when he sees, excuse me, not in Egypt, in Midian, when he sees the daughters of Yisro at the well where he intervenes in order to save them, that's the kind of person that the lawyer is expected to be. You are supposed to be somebody who will save the vulnerable from those who would victimize them. And so you have case after case that's brought in the Talmud in which even though we have rules about being fair and not being biased towards one party or another, nonetheless, in court, we find that the, uh, that there is an attempt to save the vulnerable. So in source number 10, I brought you one example of it. There is a rule within the, within the Torah that every seven years you have a Shemitah year, a sabbatical year. At that point, all loans that are in default are annulled. However, the lender is able to get around that by preparing a document called a prosbol. So what happens if you have somebody who is owed money and he shows up in court and says, I want that money paid back. However, the sabbatical year has passed and the borrower says, I don't know what you're talking about. This loan was already canceled. So when such a case would come in front of the sage Rav, he would go out of his way to ask the the lender, perhaps you had a prosbol, you had such a document and it was lost even though he's leading the witness, so to speak, he's leading the, uh, the the plaintiff by providing the plaintiff the opportunity to say, oh yeah, that's what happened. Nonetheless, we have a verse in Proverbs which says, open your mouth for the mute. When you have somebody who is mute, you may need to open your mouth for them. That is our expectation, is that you are going to open your mouth in order to help those who are who are in trouble in the legal arena. Not only that, we are also taught that we're supposed to help others financially when they are vulnerable. We talked about pro bono work 
in, uh, in law. Source number 11, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, when he talks about the levels of tzedakah, of helping people out financially, he says the highest level of tzedakah includes creating a partnership with a needy person, providing the person with work, so that you strengthen his hand until he no longer needs to ask from others. So you try to enter into partnerships with needy people. You want to help them out. You have an obligation to help people financially, and that will extend to the lawyer as well, although I'm going to mitigate that in a minute. So my point so far is simply to say that there's a lot of pressure on the lawyer, both professionally and the the Jewish lawyer religiously, to find ways to help the uh, the litigant and to really be the savior of the litigant. Yes, Raquel. Excellent. I'm going to come back to that. It's a great thought, and it's going to be relevant to a source that I'm going to bring soon. Um, but you are you're absolutely correct that um, that from from Moshe himself we get this lesson that you have to know your limits. Absolutely true. Thank you. From a Jewish perspective, there's a lot to be said to mitigate this problem. First of all, um, Judaism honors financial self-interest, even as it honors chesed, acts of kindness towards others. In one example of that, Rabbi Yeshaya Blau was a, uh, a leading judge on rabbinical courts in Israel for many, many years. He literally wrote the book on Choshen Mishpat, the body of financial law in Judaism. He wrote a 10-volume work on different aspects of, uh, of litigation and financial law called Pidchei Choshen. And in source number 12, um, he deals with the question of a store owner. You have a grocery store, and somebody comes into your store, and they want, uh, they, they're, they're very, very hungry, they don't have any money, and they want some of your merchandise, and they say, I'm willing to pay you back eventually, but you know what's going to happen. So he says, a store owner whose main livelihood is from the store is not obligated to give a pauper merchandise on credit. And in the footnote, he explains this person's main livelihood comes from buying merchandise in exchange for his sales. Giving credit would prevent him from buying merchandise. So the point here and the uh, the message that I wanted to draw from it is that the lawyer should not feel a financial obligation to endanger himself in order to help a, uh, a needy client. That's not the expectation. This is how you make your living. Um, and we have lots of other sources that are, that are similar, including, I brought you a link in source number 13, so you could see the article yourself. Rabbi J. David Bleich wrote an article on physician strikes in 1984, and in it he discussed the ability of doctors to be able to go on strike for their financial needs. So if a doctor is able to go on strike for financial needs, then a lawyer certainly is able to. And read the article. You'll see more about that there. So in terms of saying I have an obligation to take on um, new clients or an obligation to help a client who's not able to pay, there is 
a mitigating side to it. Now, there are limits to that. So in the physician strikes discussion, for example, physicians are not allowed to say, I'm not going to save somebody whose life is in danger. Like there are certain things that, that have to be kept. Hospitals have to keep a certain staffing level that is considered necessary for the sake of saving lives. The issue is much more when you're dealing with treatments which are not clear-cut life and death treatments. That's where it comes in. But my point is simply to say financial self-interest is legitimate in Judaism. And the same thing is true when it comes to personal time. There's a lot of discussion, again, in the medical field about the um, about this question of going on vacation. Is a doctor allowed to go on vacation? What about the people who, who need the doctor's help? Judaism places a large onus on the individual doctor, saying that, you know, it could be there are other doctors available, but maybe you have special expertise. You have a particular relationship. If you take a look at source number 14, Dr. Fred Rosner, a major expert in the field of medical ethics, says, you know, maybe physicians are obligated to always be available for their patients. And he says, I don't know. The question requires additional deliberation and consultation with competent rabbinic authorities. He isn't so sure about vacations for doctors. However, um, authorities in Jewish law tend to offer three arguments for leniency. And this takes us back, Raquel, to where you were before. Um, number one, they uh, they say it's true that a doctor has a mitzvah of saving the lives of people who are suffering, helping people who are suffering. Um, that 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 is correct. Nonetheless, the um, there is such a thing. Uh, you know, let me let me skip the first one of the three. It's less relevant when it, when we're dealing with uh, with lawyers. I'm going to go to the second and third. The second argument that is brought is that you could be a better lawyer better doctor in the medical field in the event that you take this break, meaning that we recognize that overwork reduces somebody's efficacy. And that's a key point. The other is, again, other lawyers may be able to cover for you while you are on vacation, while you are away. And I brought you Rabbi Yosef Shalom al-Yashiv in source number 15 regarding doctors, who mentions that as well. Even though Judaism tends to say maybe this doctor has special expertise, nonetheless, he's willing to authorize vacations where there is coverage. So my point is to say, just like we said financially, it's legitimate to say, I need to protect myself, so too personally it's legitimate. And here I point to source number 16. Source number 16 is a, is, is a very important idea from Rabbi Elazar Papo, who authored the book Pele Yoetz. Pele Yoetz is a guide to Jewish ethics. And under the heading of chesed, of kindness, he says what you see here. He says, even greater, greater than the obligation to help others, is the obligation to perform chesed, acts of kindness, with one's self and one's own body. Right. This is, you see, I gave you where he's writing this, 18th, you know, the end of 18th century Bulgaria, long before the self-care movement um, was a thing. He says, you have to take care of yourself as well. He quotes a verse in Mishlei in Proverbs, which says, one who gives to himself is a man of chesed. And they said of Hillel the elder that when he dined, when he ate, he would say, I will go perform chesed for my guest, meaning his soul. He was taking care of himself. So there is an idea in Judaism, despite the expectation that you're going to act for others, 
that you also look after yourself and you take care of yourself. So when we talk about this gladiator mentality of self-sacrifice, and I'm going to be the white knight, and I'm going to be the hero, um, recognize that there is also a duty to take care of yourself. Clear? Okay. What about the combatant? The gladiator litigator as a combatant, somebody said before the... Um, I forget the exact wording, but you're going to be the one who's going to fight to the death. So I saw this great article. When I say the word great, I mean entertaining. Let's be clear. Um, it's in source number 17 from the San Diego Super Lawyers magazine. And I fully realize that something with that name is probably advertising driven and you put an ad in and they write an article about you. I get it. Nonetheless, you got to read the article. It's a lot of fun. They're talking about this litigator named Cynthia. I don't know exactly how to pronounce her last name. Chihak, something like that. As Cynthia Chihak rises to cross-examine the witness, a physician, she's not much taller standing than the witness is sitting. In a deceptively soothing voice, the slender Chihak asks, Did your mother ever tell you you should always tell the truth? The physician shifts in his seat and stiffly replies, I believe we had that discussion at one point. So why did you forget it when you came into the courtroom today? Chihak fires back. Ouch. Telling that story in her office near Del Mar, Chiak punctuates it with a throaty laugh, delighting in the event as much now as she did then. I don't come from a silk-stocking firm, she explains. I have a street mentality. You eat what you kill. That's what being a plaintiff's lawyer is all about. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many people like that story? I don't know. The, uh, the, I see, all right, I see some hands. Um, and the, the article is a fun article overall, if you're reading it for entertainment as opposed to reading it, you know, caring about the profession. Um, the, the idea here is a motivation that is simultaneously selfless and selfish, right? It's selfless. I'm helping my client. This is the way that I'm helping my client. And selfish because I want the victory. I want the reputation. I want future success. Um, and Judaism you know, as we've said, uh, believes that you're supposed to be fighting on behalf of the vulnerable. So it justifies you in, in doing this. But the problem is that this is a very eroding thing to do, meaning living your life in combat with others. You know, it, it, it's a very rapid way to burn out. Living your you know, your professional experience as I am going to find ways to to go into combat with others. You know, football players at a certain point stop playing, and they talk about how they just don't feel that hunger that they felt before. This um, yeah, this can be a danger as well to the uh, to the lawyer. Leave aside the problem of whether it's bad for the profession, which is a whole other story. Right? I brought you in uh, source number 18 a link to an article, legal, The Legal Research Guide to Ethics, in which they talk about the five duties of the lawyer. Right, The five duties of the lawyer are duty to the public, duty to the courts, duty to the client, duty to the fellow lawyer, and duty to third parties. So there is a duty to the, uh, the fellow lawyer and the duty to the profession not to bring the profession into disrepute. So if you take a look at source 19 from the Rules of Professional Conduct, 
when acting as an advocate, a lawyer shall not, among other things, knowingly attempt to deceive a tribunal or influence the course of justice by offering false evidence, misstating facts or law, presenting or relying upon a false or deceptive affidavit, suppressing what ought to be disclosed. There are limits on what a lawyer can do. The lawyer is obligated to be honest with the court, and it goes on. You can see it on the other side, misstating the contents of a document, um, asserting as true a fact when its truth cannot reasonably be supported by the evidence. And those are all the negatives. And then on the positive side of things, in source number 20, a lawyer shall be courteous, civil, and act in good faith with all persons with whom the lawyer has dealings in the course of his or her practice. A lawyer shall avoid sharp practice, shall not take advantage of or act without fair warning upon slips, irregularities, or mistakes on the part of other legal practitioners, not going to the merits or involving the sacrifice of a client's rights. So, you, you know, we have this requirement of civility, um, and that plays out in the rules for how you handle cases. I gave you more in 21, but I think I've made the point. So, from a professional perspective... You're not really supposed to be a cutthroat combatant. There's a requirement of civility. There's a requirement of courtesy. When you deal with it from a Jewish perspective, there's an additional religious layer to it. Because in Judaism, litigation is a religious pursuit. So that you're supposed to keep in mind Jewish values separate from your professional motivations. I gave one example of this on the sheet in source number 22 where the Talmud tells us that when three judges sit in judgment, meaning when a court convenes, God is present. And it quotes a verse to, uh, to support that. God is present in the courtroom. There's a responsibility there to God. There's a responsibility to act in a way that's consistent with a religious activity. That's number one. Number two you have a duty to the other lawyer and the opposing litigant in that I'm always prohibited from causing an adversary to make a mistake in a business dealing. So I brought you in source number 23, where Maimonides talks about this in the business of buying and selling. And he says, you're not allowed to have dishonest weights and measures. You're not allowed to cheat anybody. It's abhorrent before God for somebody to do so. So you have to you know, keep in mind, you have a duty to the other party as well, and you have a duty to the profession. And I brought you here in source number 24, where Maimonides talks about when you appoint a judge, making sure that the judges are people who represent the court well, who will not give the court a bad reputation. The same thing is true regarding the lawyer's conduct. In court, the lawyer has to be careful not to give justice a bad reputation. So for all of these reasons, being a combatant is actually counter to what the profession and what Judaism are looking for from you. Yes, you have to be zealous for the client. Yes, you can't sacrifice the rights of the client. Um, at the same time, there really are limits to your role as a combatant. So to come back then to vignette number one, where we're talking about Samantha, the veteran litigator, who um, is feeling a desire to leave the profession and thinks it's about being the sense of being a gladiator litigator, she does have to recognize that, number one, being a knight in shining armor is not necessarily to her advantage and is not necessarily mandated, and that being a combatant um, has its limitations uh, as well, professional as well as religious. Comments on that?
I rushed through some of the sources, but hopefully it's clear. Yeah, Sergio. Yeah, um, the problem with the uh, law society rules uh, uh, and also with, to some extent, the ABA model rules, which yeah. are uh, pre- uh, what was being used in the United States as the model for all the bar rules, is that they set up all these semi-contradictory uh, obligations that create all these gray areas that are a fertile uh, ground for interpretation. And there's so much gray in all that yep. that people are left to wonder what is it that I should do, unless the situation is very clear cut. Right. Right? Uh, a client comes in and says, I'm going to rob the bank upstairs at 3 p.m., okay, uh, or, or something like that. Uh, then you are left with a whole bunch of grayness and you don't really know what to do. And I think that's a contributor to the stress that many people um, experience because not knowing what to do and when you seek guidance from uh, either colleagues or the law society, professional advisory services, etc., you know, they give you all this gobbledygook that's not really helpful. Right. No, you're right that there's, there is gray area. I mean, when we read the, the line about... Um, you know, not going to the merits or involving the sacrifice of a client's rights. We talked about this a while back. We had a class about sharp practice, I don't know, it's about six or seven years ago. And um, and I think, I don't remember if it was you and I who had this conversation, but, but you know, at what point do you call that sacrificing the client's rights? You know, even if it's a technicality, fundamentally, my client has the right to, uh, to you know, have the case pursued and to stand on the... Uh, the um, the limitation periods and you know and so on. So I agree with you, but what I'm suggesting here is more about the value being conveyed than the law for a particular circumstance, and the idea that we don't necessarily say you need to um, to be the knight in shining armor. You need to sacrifice your health and your financial well-being. Um, you need to go head to head, you know, with everybody in this hard charging way. That's really what I'm, uh, you know, that's really what I, what I'm saying. There is an opposing value here. That's where I'm going with it. But you're right. I, I, also, I also think it has to do with the area of law where you practice, because I think there are real emergencies and emergencies that are, are only emergencies in the client's head. Okay. Yeah. So the expectations are um, uh, always high, but the reality is very different. I think uh, if you practice, and I don't mean to single out any area of practice, but if you practice, say, criminal law, somebody's getting arrested, uh, uh, or or family law, there's a child being kidnapped or something like that, it's very different from if uh, you you have uh, a different kind of matter that can wait a day. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly true. Certainly true. Okay. Um, should we go on to vignette number two? Okay. So vignette number two takes me away from psychology and more towards um, law, Jewish law. Going back to the vignette at the bottom of the first side. Michelle, an articling student at Acres in Pain, is experiencing depression and anxiety. She associates this with the standard challenges of the articling experience, but also with incessant criticism by her supervisor, Roger. 
Roger describes Michelle as, quote, stupid and useless, even as other counsel within the firm describe her work as reasonably efficient and of good quality. What is the responsibility of Akers and Payne toward Michelle? Thoughts? Is this common, as the first question I would ask? I read a lot about this, but yeah, Tilda. It is common. Um, when I articled in the 90s, unfortunately, the HR departments uh, were not as um, available to articling students as they should be. And um, the ability to um, voice your concerns wasn't available to articling students because students were afraid of ramifications, mm-hmm. you know, whether they were called back, uh, what kind of the quality of work, and so on and so forth, you know, whether or not you were going to be labeled as a, as a troublemaker or someone who wasn't a team player. So um, I, I don't know if it happens now, but it was fairly prevalent then, and especially towards women, because it's still, there was still a, a bit of a boys club. Um, I think the responsibility of the law firm is to support Michelle and give her the ability to remedy the situation in terms of either, um, you know, a fair process or support so that she can be successful because, you know, you're looking to make sure that um, someone feels safe in the environment that they're working in any environment, whether it's legal or otherwise. Um, and, you know, the fact that she's a woman and man adds an extra layer of concern. Right. So, yeah, that would be my answer. Thank you. I don't see this excusable under any circumstances in any practice, in any job. This is terrible behavior, period. I mean, it should never be tolerated. It doesn't matter who it is or where it is. Yep. Also very very counterproductive. I mean, (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, Whenever you're dealing in any profession, as you say, with a situation in which you have a superior who has power over um, the junior person, um, you get people who are acting out their frustrations in their personal lives and taking it out on somebody, having nothing to do with the professional environment whatsoever, but they're going to do it anyway. It exists. I didn't hear you. Sorry, what, Paul? Michelle should get the boys together and take care of Roger. Yes. There's an idea. Well, I want to show you some statistics. If you take a look at source number 25 from the wellness study, 58.7% reported having been exposed, this is just general legal professionals, reported having been exposed to incivility sometimes often or very often in the past five years. Now, incivility is a very vague term. I don't know exactly what incivility means. So if that were your only statistic, I would say, I don't know what that's worth. 9.8% of Ontario paralegals report having experienced threats of violence, ranging from a few times to every day in the 12 months prior to the date they completed the survey. Oh, my God. In 72.2% of the cases of incivility, violence, and so on, the uncivil and violent acts came directly from the legal community, colleagues, supervisors, or judges. 
I don't even know what that means in terms of the judges. Uh, I don't know what I that means. I actually experienced that. I, I, I've come across judges who, I, I think it's like you said before, they got up on the wrong side of the bed or something. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, they'll, they'll just tear a strip off somebody that they feel they can tear a strip off. Mm-hmm. That would be me, by the way, that I'm referring to. Got but, it. Uh, yeah, I found it quite shocking and not at all called for, especially under the circumstances. But anyway, that does seem to happen. Yeah. Well, take a look at number 26, because this is a specific story from an article called Articling Horror Stories. The lawyer seemed engaged and thoughtful. When this is, um, There's a woman named Erica who is pursuing an articling position, and she's interviewing with a lawyer. So the lawyer seemed engaged and thoughtful. When Erica told him that her father was a general contractor, he said that her exposure to that industry would make her an asset to his real estate practice. And when she mentioned her Mi'kmaq heritage, he expressed an interest in learning more about indigenous peoples in Canada. It felt like a great fit, so she took the job. That turned out to be a terrible mistake. Once she started work, her new boss treated her as if she wasn't there. They barely spoke, and when he gave her tasks, they were of the most menial kind. He would tell her to file papers or answer the phones. Erica confronted her boss. It wasn't that she objected to handling occasional secretarial tasks. It was that she wanted experience in the practice of law. Her principal was surprised by this argument. He pushed his glasses to the tip of his nose and looked at her above the frames. You need to take the firm as it is, he said. Their relationship never improved. Erica asked repeatedly that he assign her meaningful work. He obliged grudgingly, but his attempts were half-hearted at best. He'd ask her to write a closing report on a real estate transaction she knew nothing about. He would tell her to draft a will for a client, but then refuse to let her sit in on the consult meeting. If she made mistakes, he would yell, swear, or call her incompetent. By the way, just if you noticed in the opening line of the article, uh, the headline of the article, 2019. His temper could be terrifying. A month into the job, he handed her a reference number and told her to retrieve the corresponding file from the storage room. When she produced the wrong document, he went into a rage. He stormed to my desk and started flaring pages all over the place looking for the piece of paper he'd given me, recalls Erica. Eventually, he found it, revealing that the mistake had been his all along. He'd written down the incorrect number. Still, he insisted that she was at fault for failing to catch his error. I mean, we know people like this. But when you encounter it as an articling student, entirely vulnerable to you know the supervisor because it's hard to get articling positions because of the uh, the difficulty in terms of wages, in terms of getting you know the kind of work that's going to be meaningful. I mean, you know this, you know, all of you know this more than I do. I just know about from from people I've spoken to and art and you know in articles I've read about it. Um, so, you know, what's supposed to happen here? at the law firm. What is this law firm supposed to do on behalf of Michelle? Because this is apparently a thing. This happens. So the first point that I would make from a Jewish law perspective is that this abuse is prohibited in any setting. This is never okay. Um, I brought you in source number 27, the uh, discussion of what's called in Hebrew, onaz devarim. Onaz devarim means literally using your force, your strength against somebody else verbally. To put it in short, verbal abuse is what you're talking about. And the Talmud teaches there, just as there is commercial onaa, you're not allowed to use 
a superior position against somebody else financially, to cheat somebody, to charge them more than is a fair rate, and so on. So there is verbal onah. There's a concern about doing this verbally. One may not say to somebody, how much does this item cost when he doesn't wish to buy it? You have somebody who's trying to sell something, and you ask for the price, you have no interest in buying it whatsoever. And that, by the way, is going to be brought in source number 28 as law in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law. If someone has repented, they did something wrong, and then they repented, you're not allowed to say to them, you know, remember your earlier deeds. If someone is a child of people who converted to Judaism, you're not allowed to say to them, remember your ancestors' deeds. The Torah says, do not abuse, do not oppress the convert. This is all a Mishnah the core text of the Talmud. And on that, the sages comment, there's a biblical verse, you shall not abuse each other. This is a reference to verbal abuse. And as I said, in Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch, in source number 28, we get applications of this in law. Um, Pesach is coming, you may have heard. The, um, so just to throw in a Passover thought, um, the Torah describes the labor of the Jews in Egypt as avodat Perech, work that was Perech. And the question is, what does the word Perech actually mean? So Perech can mean crushing. And so some take that to mean crushing labor, like physically crushing labor. However, the Talmud and the Midrash bring the possibility that it's not talking about physically crushing labor. Rather, it's talking about labor that was psychologically crushing, emotionally crushing. So if you take a look at source number 29, you find the idea that there were tasks that were more suited to men and they gave them to women, or more suited to women, they gave them to men. I'm not getting into what that means. Is that a sexist thing? Is it work that they were better suited for physically? Not the point right now. The point is simply that you're giving people work to do that they are not used to, that they will not be good at, and uh, and and you don't even care that the results aren't going to be good results. It's just about crushing the other person. If you take a look at source number 30, the, um, the Torah has a specific rule. There's a lot of discussion in the Torah about slavery. I'm not going into the ins and outs of slavery right now because that's a fine discussion for another time. But I did want to show you the Torah says regarding the slave, you're not allowed to rule over the slave with what's called perech. What does perech mean? You can't give them unnecessary work. You can't say to them, heat up this cup unnecessarily, cool this cup down unnecessarily. I want you to hoe under the grapevine until I arrive. Unnecessary work is not allowed because, again, it is crushing work um, emotionally. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that the that psychological pain and inducing psychological pain in somebody who works for you um, is recognized and prohibited within Judaism. So then what's the firm's responsibility? What is the firm supposed to do? So in civil law, there is something which you could probably tell me a lot about much more than I know um, called the contract duty of care. Right? There is a responsibility of the employer to make sure to provide a safe space for the employee. The employee cannot be put into a position that, uh, that is dangerous for them. So you have, if you take a look at source number 31, the Ontario Occupational Health and Safety Act of 1990. I don't know why. In the U.S., it's the opposite. It's the Occupational Safety and Health Act. 
In Canada, it's the Health and Safety Act. I don't know if that has to do with French or if that has to do with wanting to be different. I don't know what that's about. But uh, nonetheless, the Occupational Health and Safety Act defines something called workplace harassment. Engaging in a course of vexatious comment or conduct against a worker in a workplace that is known or ought reasonably to be known to be unwelcome. Okay, if the boss should be able to figure out, it's not just a boss, if the, whoever it is, um, should be able to figure out that this type of conduct or speech is unwelcome, that's workplace harassment, workplace sexual harassment, which they go on to discuss as well. To protect a worker from workplace harassment, an employer shall ensure that an investigation is conducted into incidents and complaints of workplace harassment that is appropriate in the circumstances. Flipping the page. The worker who has allegedly experienced workplace harassment and the alleged harasser, if he or she is a worker of the employer, are informed in writing of the results of the investigation and of any corrective action that has been taken or that will be taken as a result of the investigation. Now, obviously, what's missing here is what constitutes a good investigation. All it says is that there has to be an investigation appropriate to the circumstance. It doesn't say what that looks like, probably because you can't fit that into the act, meaning it's so specific to circumstances. I still would have liked to have seen something that gave me some indication of what uh, what the expectations should be. But from a from a civil law perspective, there is absolutely an expectation that this firm is going to act on the complaint. Granted that, Michelle may be afraid to lodge the complaint because she is afraid of repercussions for her. Nonetheless, the firm for its side has to have a process for handling this in an open way. From a Jewish law perspective, there is absolutely an expectation that the employee has to be able to trust the employer. And this comes up in source number 32. It's not dealing with emotional abuse here. It's dealing with a physical problem. They're talking about the case of a porter, someone who earns a living by carrying goods. So the, um, the sage is taught that there is a maximum load that you're allowed to give to the porter. You're not allowed to, to give the porter too much to carry. The measure is a kav, fine. So the Talmud asks a question. Why is there a restriction on what the employer is able to give to the porter. Let him give whatever amount he wants to give. And if the porter can't carry more, he's intelligent, let him throw it down. Why is there a responsibility on the boss? Let the boss say, if you can't take it, quit. So the Talmud gives three answers. The first answer is Abaye. Abaye says you're right. It's true. The employee could quit. The employer is only liable if the employee did not have the opportunity to quit, the employee got hurt right away when you put the load on their shoulders, but otherwise you're right, the employee should just walk away. The sage Rava disagreed and said, no, even if he's not knocked down immediately, the measure of maximum is relevant in permitting the porter to charge more. Rava says, it's not about that. The employee can quit, just like Abaye said, and that's that. However... In the event that you give the employee too much, the employee is entitled to say, I want more money to renegotiate. But then you get the third view. And the third view is the view of Rav Ashi. And Rav Ashi said, no, the employee 
is right, the employer is wrong, because the porter, in this particular case, thought they could put up with it. They thought, if the boss is giving me this workload, it must be manageable. If I am having trouble with it, it's because I'm feeling sick. I didn't get enough sleep. There's something wrong with me, is what the employee starts to think. And that's the problem. As Maimonides in source number 33 brings, the, um, the, the employee trusts the employer. And that's the problem. They think if there's something wrong, it must be my fault. They, um, we're going to discuss this more when we talk about billable hours targets in the fourth case. But my point right now is simply to say there is an assumption in Judaism that the employer is looking out for the employee's well-being and will not put the employee into a situation that is unhealthy for them. The, uh, and in the event that they do, they are guilty of misconduct. That's the, that's the idea. Is this clear? Am I going through it too quickly or we're all right? No? Okay. Questions and comments regarding the second vignette before we go to the third one. Okay, then let's go on to the third one. The third one takes us back towards the realm of psychology. Arthur, 28, married with one child, is in his second year as an associate at Misery and Bernuth. Like 71% of his age cohort, as described in the wellness study of the Federation of Law Societies of Canada, Arthur reports experiencing psychological distress. The distress is manifest in feelings of anxiety and depression. What recommendations can Judaism offer Arthur for managing his situation? He's a second-year associate. He's 28 years old. The, um, he's experiencing psychological distress. He's got anxiety. He's got depression. What advice can Judaism offer for him? So there's a lot to be said um, on this point. I want to cover three points. First point, seeking professional help. The, um, this is something that Arthur ought to be doing. The wellness study talks about why lawyers don't seek um, psychological support or use the assistance program set up by the Law Society. If you take a look at source number 34, I'm also going to remind people again to sign in in the chat if you didn't yet, um, to those who, uh, who want credit. But in source number 34, reasons given for not seeking psychological health support, and I just brought the top five. 55.8% tell themselves, this will pass. 37.6% say, I didn't have the energy for it. 26.3% say, I don't have time. Another 26.3% say, no money. It's not another. You realize people can give more than one answer. This doesn't add up to 100%. Um, 26.3% say, I don't have the money for it. 13.6% say they are ashamed. Honestly, I'm surprised that number is that low. I think for a lot of people, it's the shame issue. The, uh, they may be ashamed to respond that they're ashamed, but I, I, I think that that's um, a real phenomenon as well. Not using the Law Society's assistance programs. 39.8% were afraid it would be shared with the Law Society or with regulators. 34.2% don't believe that it can help. 29.8% were like, what assistance program? I don't know what you're talking about. 22.6% um, said, my problem isn't serious enough for professional assistance. 17.7% afraid of what their colleagues or friends would think. I, I think that, again, that one is probably low. 
I think that that's, you know, it, reality is it's higher. Um, we know that in general society, not just in, you know, in the legal field. But from a Jewish perspective, we're obligated to do so. First of all, we're obligated to seek medical care any time that, that we are not well within Judaism. In source number 35, I brought you a quote from Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg. He was dealing with the following problem. There are biblical commentators who say that they, um, really, we should be able to turn to God for support any time we're not feeling well, any time we are sick, any time we're having a problem. I should turn to God, not to other human beings. That's one, uh, that's one position. And then on the other hand, the Torah licenses doctors. The Torah specifically talks about um, hiring a doctor, and then uh, if, if party A harms party B, party A will have to pay the doctor for the medical bills for party B. So clearly the Torah recognizes that there is such a thing as a doctor. And Rabbi Waldenberg, writing at the end of the 20th century, in source number 35, he said, yeah, all things being equal, if we lived in a perfect world, then you could just go to a prophet for healing. That would be fine. But he says, that's not our world. We don't heal via miracles from heaven. That's not the way it works. And the Torah itself says we don't depend on miracles. So therefore, you have an obligation to go seek medical care. There's a lot, a lot to talk about regarding Jewish law and psychologists and so on. But the bottom line is that we view a threat to mental health as a life and death issue in many cases, we view the risks associated with anxiety, depression, and so on very, very seriously. And we view it as a threat to one's Judaism. I just brought you one source. Um, this is from source number 36 from a pamphlet called Yira Tahara. This pamphlet has been circulating for years and years in Bnei Brak, which is a fairly observant Jewish community in Israel. And they, um, they're dealing with the issue of OCD and anxiety, which reaches the point where it's causing people to have problems with fulfillment of mitzvot. So the case that he's dealing with in this specific section, it's written anonymously, so I don't know who the author is. But the, um, but the, the particular topic they're talking about here is somebody who has trouble praying because their OCD is causing them to be unsure that they're saying the words properly. And so they keep repeating and they take forever. And the result is that they are likely to pray less. So look at what it says in number 36, reading out my English translation. In truth, it is known to us from experience and from those who are very involved in the field that no one ever had OCD-related anxiety halt on its own without them declaring a war of destruction, a sacred war. Also, one who neglects the issue due to laziness, failing to act, is a colleague to the destructive person. He destroys for himself entirely the structure of prayer. And he goes on to talk about the importance of seeking professional help. I, I thought I had brought more about that, but I see that I didn't. But from a Jewish perspective, absolutely, this uh, Arthur um, should be getting professional help. That's what Judaism would want this person to, uh, to do. That's number one. Number two, this is something that I particularly enjoy, from Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Tversky, who passed away last year, um, was a giant in many fields, in particular the field of addiction and addictions counseling. 
Um, if you're not familiar with him, Google his name. Um, really somebody you, you, you have to know about. Um, and uh, he wrote 60-something books, although he liked to say he wrote the same book 60-something times. Um, but, um, but when I was in uh, my second year in the synagogue rabbinate, um, I went to a convention, and he spoke at the convention on the topic of burnout. And he had wonderful, wonderful things to say about burnout. Um, and one of the things that he said, which was very relevant for rabbis, but I think it's very relevant for lawyers, particularly if you're in that hero mentality type of a circumstance, he said 50 to 75% of your emotional satisfaction should come from something outside of your job. You should not be looking to your job for your emotional satisfaction, what's called in Hebrew, sipuk hanefesh. If you take a look at source number 37, I found an article online that, where, he, where they quoted him on this point. Unfortunately, the article is no longer there, and archive.org had not uh, archived it, but you've got it right here on this sheet, so save the sheet. He said, I think burnout is an excellent term. To me, it is a very graphic one. I had an opportunity for some insight into this a number of years ago when one of my sons was attending seminary, yeshiva. Students were not allowed to have any electrical appliances in the dormitory because of fire hazards. They were permitted, however, an iron because they did their own laundry, which included ironing their clothes. My son's roommate, a very ingenious young man, solved the problem of not having access to equipment for cooking and making coffee. Use the iron, turn it upside down, jam the handle in a drawer, and one has a hot surface on which to make scrambled eggs, toast, coffee, popcorn, you name it. Right. Uh, those who have been in yeshiva in Israel, you know, this may sound familiar. We had a sandwich maker and the sandwich maker made so much more than sandwiches. When my son told me about this, I thought, how clever. Why spend money for four or five different appliances in the kitchen, all of which provide heat? Just turn the iron upside down. You have a griddle, a coffee maker, a popcorn popper. Then I stopped to think what would happen to the iron. The heat for the iron is provided by a tiny, delicate filament designed to be used an hour or so a week for the purpose of ironing clothes. If, in addition to ironing with it, you choose to use it for other purposes, as a griddle, coffee maker, popcorn popper, space heater, what will happen to that tiny, what will happen to that tiny, delicate filament? It will burn out. Just as the iron's filament will burn out if we put a greater stress on it than it was designed to take, the same thing will happen to us when greater stress is placed on us in our job situation than it was meant to take. What an apt analogy. The, um, he says that's, that's the reality of a profession. It's very interesting. The Talmud talks about what kind of profession you should pursue for your kids. If you take a look at source number 38 from the Talmud in Kiddushin, it mentions a son. I will go out on a limb and apply it to a daughter as well. He says, one should always teach his son a clean and easy trade and pray to the one who owns all wealth and assets. Pray to God that they do well financially. But your priority is not how can they make the most money. Your priority is not their emotional satisfaction. Your priority is something that they can do. They, um, you know, something that's clean, something that doesn't involve corruption, something that isn't going to get them into trouble, something that they can do simply. That's that's all you're looking for. Don't look for fulfillment in the uh, in the job. And number three, having said that, you don't look for for fulfillment in the job. 
it is important to seek a sense of purpose in life. They, um, people need a sense of purpose, generally speaking, in their lives. If a person is so lost in their job um, that they don't have a chance to develop a life that is meaningful, then they're going to have a problem. This is a classic passage in the Talmud, in source number 39. It's talking about a case in which a man and woman get married, and the man takes a vow. His vow is that his wife may not work. He is going to provide help around the house. She should never have to work a day in her life. Says the Talmud, he has to divorce her and pay her the ketubah payment that goes with divorce. Because consigning somebody to an idle life is bad for their mental health. It brings about what the Talmud calls shiamum, which gets rendered often as depression. They, um, you don't, you don't want to be um, in that position in which you don't have a meaningful experience in life. And I'm, I'm looking at the time, and I want to make sure to get to vignette number four. So I'm going to just sum up what you, what I brought for you in, uh, in number forty. The Torah says, regarding Shabbos, it says, six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall halt. So the sages have pointed out that six days you shall work is also an imperative. The um, people need to have the opportunity to create. And that's very important. And I brought you Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who says that Selem Elohim, the idea that human beings are created with a special image that God designates for them, means that a person seeks and yearns to realize that which is still a vision, a hope, a mission, having a sense of mission. Now, if you're familiar with the writings of Viktor Frankl, this sounds very much like logotherapy, and I gave you a link for a class that I taught about logotherapy in number 42. But the point that I wanted to make here is, again, three things for this fellow Arthur. Number one, from a Jewish perspective, he absolutely should be seeking professional help. Number two, he should not be looking for fulfillment from his job. That's not what it's designed for. The job is supposed to be the way you make your living, and that's it. I mean, you can have satisfaction. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have satisfaction, but I, but that should not be the goal of uh, of his work. And he should seek a sense of purpose in life outside of the uh, of the workplace. I realize I'm rushing it a little bit, but I wanted to get to number four as well. Are we okay? Okay. So let's go to number four. Number four is an issue that I did a lot of reading about, billable hours targets. So dealing with our friend Arthur, Arthur faces a billable hours target of 2,200 hours per year. Is that, by the way, just I'm asking you, is that a number that um, that people here in Ontario It, it seemed high to me, no, but it's not. it's not. What would you say is a normal number to see? About 17, 1800. 17 or 1800. Okay. I, mean, I thought 1800 was sort of high end. That was my impression. And then I started reading message boards of lawyers, and I kept seeing numbers that were higher, and that's why I did the 2200. Um, well, unsurprisingly, it's putting great strain on his marriage. The local norm is for associates in a similar position to have targets in the range of, 80 to, of 1,800 hours per year. Arthur is mulling approaching, approaching Misri and Bernuth about reducing his target. What would Judaism say about Arthur's billable hours target? So you can see on the sheet 
that I, um, I brought for you from the wellness study once again in source number, I have to just flip my pages back, um, in source number 43, 78.4% of professionals with a target of less than 1,200 hours felt pressured to meet this target. This proportion rose to 85.8% among legal professionals who were required to complete over 1,800 billable hours. 70.7% of professionals with a billable hours target between 1,200 and 1,800 hours were afraid to start a family. This rose to 81.5% if they were required to complete over 1,800 billable hours. There are a lot of people who are feeling a lot of pressure with these kinds of targets. I mean, the wellness study says people with these targets tend to work longer hours. That wasn't so surprising. Um, I thought that was the point. But the, the, um, the pressure that people feel can really be destructive. And I thought it would be instructive to look at how Judaism approaches the hours of labor. There's a passage in the Talmud and Bava Mitzia in source number 44. It's based on a verse in Psalms which describes people going uh, to work or rising in the morning at first light and then going to uh, and then going back home uh, at night and without going into the ins and outs of all of that. If you take a look at source number 44, the Mishnah, the core text of the Talmud, if one hires day laborers and tells them to rise early and stay late, in a place where the practice is not to rise early or stay late, he cannot compel them. You can't force them to do so. Say the rabbis commenting on this in the Gemara, well, that's obvious. Of course you can't force them. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where the employer set unusually high wages to begin with. So you hired them for a job that's normally, I'm just going to make up numbers, $15 an hour. And you say to them, I'm going to give you 25 an hour without telling them anything about extra time or, or not. You just, um, you said, I'm going to give you 25 an hour to which they said, great, where do I sign? And then you say to them, for your 25 hour, $25 an hour for which you signed, I expect you to show up at 5 a.m. instead of showing up at 8 a.m. I expect you to stay until 10 p.m. instead of leaving at 7. They are whatever it is, fill in the blank with whatever times you want. So I might contend, says the Talmud, that he, the employer, could tell them, I increased your wages intending for you to start early and stay late. However, it's not so. The mission is saying they can reply, no, you just wanted better quality work. And that's why you are paying me more. And so the Talmud in the discussion gives two, way, uh, two ways out for the employee. If the target is unreasonable, even if the employee knew what the hours were at the time that they were hired, they're able to say, I'm sorry, your target is unreasonable. And they can back out. They can walk away without any penalty. They, um, because, as we said before, an employer is not allowed to give an employee dangerous work. Having them work these extra hours is not good for them. The employee, even if the employee said yes, that's because the employee trusted the employer not to give them something that would be harmful. In the event that the demand that the employer is making is achievable, but it's beyond the local norm, in the event that the employee didn't know the amount at hiring time, the employee is able to reject it. If they knew, 
it's achievable and it's just beyond the norm and the employee knew, then the employee is stuck because then you forgave your rights. There's a lot to say on this, but I didn't bring the sources on the sheet because I knew we would be getting to this towards the end. But again, in the event that it's actually considered dangerous for the employee, even if you stipulated it from the outset, the employee is able to walk away without any penalty because that wasn't an appropriate expectation for the employer to have. And the employee is able to say, I trusted the employer not to put me in a bad position. Whereas if it's something that is doable, it's just not the local norm, then if you accepted it, you're stuck with it. That's the basic principle. But the biggest point that I wanted to make in this section is even though we say that an employee is able to forgive their rights in the event that it's not dangerous, it's just more than the local norm, the employee is able to forgive their rights. In Jewish law, one is not supposed to forgive one's rights in employment, meaning someone wants to hire you for a job, you don't surrender the rights that the Torah gives you. And here we get to my last source on the sheet, source number 45. The, um, there's a whole Talmudic discussion about the similarities and differences between being a, uh, an employee on the one hand and being a slave on the other hand. Because while it is true that the Torah envisions the possibility of slavery in certain circumstances, it's never viewed as a lichat chila. It's never viewed as an ideal. It's viewed, if anything, as an economic safety net. For people who can't make it in any other way, they can surrender their freedom and they're supposed to be treated well, but it's not supposed to be something that is just done. It's supposed to be a last-ditch thing to uh, to do. And if you take a look in number 45, I brought you four different approaches to how we know in Judaism that one is not supposed to enslave oneself. You're not supposed to forgive your rights to an employer. Number one is the biblical verse, which I referenced there for you from Vayikra, from Leviticus, where God says the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants, meaning we serve God. We're not supposed to serve human beings. That's number one. Number two, the period of slavery is supposed to max out at six years, after which the slave goes free. However, they have the possibility of extending their slavery, if they wish, until the Jubilee year, which happens every 50 years. So it could be the next year, it could be 40 years away. But they, um, they, they have the option of extending their slavery. But in the event that they do, the Torah says for them that they have to go through a ritual in which they get an earring. Their ear is pierced. What's the message of the ear piercing, says the Talmud? The ear that heard at Sinai that you are supposed to serve God and not human beings and now says, I am accepting a master for myself, has to be pierced. So the message is one should not pursue a, uh, a human master. So that's a second source that's brought for it. The third, and this is brought by Maimonides, is the fact that when the Torah presents the laws of slavery, it begins by saying when somebody becomes destitute. So Maimonides says, only if one is actually destitute is this justified. Otherwise, 
one is not allowed to uh, to take this on. And then finally, the view of the Ketzot HaChoshen, Rabbi Aryeh Heller, is that there's a rabbinic prohibition against pursuing this, even if there is no biblical one. My point in bringing this is simply to say that when it comes to billable hours targets, um, number one, there's an expectation of the employer, like we said earlier, that the employer is not going to put the employee in a position that is dangerous for them. That's number one. Number two, if the employee buys into it, thinking that the employer wouldn't endanger them, and then finds out that it is dangerous, they're able to walk away from this. And number three, if it's not dangerous, it's just not the local norm, the employee is allowed to forgive his or her rights. However, they're really not supposed to do so. You're not supposed to function as a slave to a human being. The uh, the only one we serve is God, not uh, not human beings. So the um, so so it's inappropriate to take on those kinds of uh, of extra hours. Questions and comments. Was that that easy? Yes. Bringing back to the legal profession, um, the pressure there is always pressure to take the client, um, especially if you have partners or associates, uh, or you're an associate. Um, there's always pressure to take the cl- a client, even though you sometimes know that a specific client is going to be trouble, and you know the. The old uh, maxim, uh, 20% of the uh, people give you 80% of the tourists, right? Yes. So uh, there's always pressure. So I think there's a whole culture uh, around that, that, uh, you know, unfortunately, is part and parcel of the profession. Right, and I think some of that goes back to... I mean, look, some of that is, is, is because of financial pressure that we always feel. Someone is saying, I want to pay you for services. So your natural inclination is to say, okay. Um, and some of it is, goes back to what we said in the beginning, of the sense of, I'm here to save people. I'm here to help people. But you have to be able to put a cap on that. you know. Otherwise, you end up hurting yourself. Tilda. So what's your obligation as a bystander? Let's just say you're not actively um, involved in, you know, in the conflict, but you, you know, are watching the conflict unfold. It's either a partner or, you know, someone that you work with, um, and you're and, and you're put in an awkward position of trying to deal with the situation, you know, with somebody who you, you know, want to support, but it's obviously, you know, you know, doing something that you disagree with, halakhically. Right. Are, are you talking about in terms of the like the billable hours case? You talk about the no, the. I'm talking about more the case where, um, within the legal context, you have a partner who may be inappropriate with an associate or a, mm-hmm. you know, a staff member, and you're trying to balance, you know, yeah, you know, having a safe work environment and, you know, not um, undermining him or her. Right. So. I, we, we had a session a while back on dealing with unethical coworkers. Um, we talked about this a little bit. Um, but 
yeah, we have a basic prohibition um, against effectively being a bystander. Standing, you know, the uh, the Torah says you shall not stand by while someone else's blood is shed, and it doesn't only mean literally their blood is being shed, uh, but also in the event that they're suffering harm, um, which is less than fatal, and even potentially just financial harm. Um, and the rule is that we are obligated to intervene. Now, there is a limit on that obligation where it's self-destructive for me to intervene, but then there's a lot of gray where it's something that could have negative repercussions for me, but it's not going to cause me real harm. So, you know, it might make me persona non grata at work in the event that I get involved with this, but I'm not losing my job. Um, and then it becomes, you know, how far are you willing to go out on a limb for the other person and what is their level of need? The greater their need, the more we're supposed to tolerate. To put it in the field of medical ethics, where this is usually calculated, um, we say that blood donation is considered to be almost a, uh, a religious obligation. I say almost because there are cases where it can be harmful for somebody. It does, it does happen. There are adverse reactions. But generally, if one is capable, because people who need a transfusion are in a dire state, and because the general level of risk involved in donating blood is low, so we consider that to be close to being a firm obligation. On the other hand, let's say kidney donation, also relatively safe, but definitely, you know, more in the adverse reaction department, is less of an obligation. The, um, you know, and you can, you know, add in all the other types of donations along the way in terms of filling in that spectrum. Um, but in terms of my obligation for people within the firm, the more they are suffering or the more danger they are in, the greater my obligation to get involved. That's, that's what I would say. Other questions and comments? Okay, then thank you very much, everybody. Um, and uh, please sign in in the chat if you didn't already do so. And as I said in the beginning, our next session, God willing, is going to be on June something, June 5th at 7 p.m., Artificial Intelligence and the Practice of Law. Thank you very much. Thank you.